I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here. So thanks, uh, thankful to have you with us this morning. Uh, glad to have you here and listening online later if you're doing that later. Um, I want to thank Seth Fisher for taking last week as our team uh, made its way up to Harvard Grad School for the Leadership Institute for Faith and Education. Really uh, helpful and powerful convening of faith and education leaders with Harvard leading the way on conversation around how to partner faith-based groups like Grace Point Church with educational leaders around the country. So incredible uh, opportunity to, uh, to grow into that space. We'd love to tell you more about that later. But here's the thing. While we were on our way up there, I got a text on Sunday morning that read something like this. Hey, great morning here so far. We already have one person stuck in the elevator. Now, I'm not going to call out any names, but we did have a person who was stuck in the elevator. The good news is that they are out by this week, so that is a positive thing, right? Yep. And apparently, it was a little bit of a thing where maybe elevator doors are being taken off the hinges. I don't know. But apparently, here's what happens. When you get in our elevator, maybe you don't know we have an elevator, but it's on the way out. Just one option. You can go down or up, really, and that's about it. And apparently, they went in, and, and the door closed behind them, and then it dropped about four inches and then stopped. And everything shut off inside, including the light that went off inside. So it's kind of dark in an elevator with no lights. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but it's rather pitch black. Now, the good news is you're not far away. You're just inaccessible to everyone else. And so I was on our way up to Harvard. I thought, seriously, we have a guy stuck in the elevator? You've got to be kidding me. And then I thought, you know what, in many ways, it's kind of like the way life is for many of us sometimes, that we get into an elevator, we get into a, a way of moving in a direction, whether it's a new phase of life, a new career, a new health challenge, and all of a sudden, we think we're going to go somewhere, and the lights go off, and we're lost in terms of direction of where to go. It's unclear what path we should take. And sometimes I think life can kind of be like being stuck in an elevator in the dark. Like, I wish I knew which way to go. I wish I could at least see the buttons in front of me. I wish I could at least know where maybe God would want me to go. Or even if I don't believe in God, if I at least knew what a wise decision would be to make. And sometimes living in that darkness is what we all experience if we live life long enough. It can be challenging and come up on us quickly times like that. In fact, back to Harvard for a minute, when I was there on um, Tuesday, I believe it was, we realized that there were two groups that were meeting in the same space that we were. One um, group, they had food provided for them. Our group did not. We were extremely jealous of the other group. And there was a common area right in the middle of our two convenings, so to speak. And there was a person, a caterer, who was in charge of the other group's food. And so they put the food out in front of both groups as we recessed for our breaks. And we would, our group would walk past tables of food that had signs on them that said, for whatever, convening only, meaning not for us, which was rather frustrating. And there was a gentleman there in all black just standing by the food. And I said to him on my way by, I said, are you the security guard for the food? To which he said, yes. I'm like, so you don't trust the other adults not to take the food? And so we had a little dialogue there. He looked like he was in his early 20s maybe. And he enjoyed the brief conversation and I went on. And, and as I went by him, I noticed that he was standing afar from the food and just standing there for much of the day. And as I kind of went back and forth with him throughout the day, throughout the morning, I just kind of, you know, would walk by and say, you're doing a great job guarding the food. Now, here's what happened around lunchtime. As lunchtime finished and our little group recessed for the day, I walked by him, I think, to use the bathroom quick. And as I took a couple paces by him, he said, hey, my manager just left. Go ahead and grab a sandwich. <laughs> and I was immediately stuck because the instinct in me is like, oh, I, I 
don't want to steal your food, and you're inviting me to take food that isn't mine. And yet, you're being kind to me, and I want to honor that socially, and I felt like I'm in an elevator in the dark, like I don't know what to do. And so I walked over to the table, kind of ham-hawing around, like I shouldn't steal the food, it's not for us, and he's guarding it, and he's kind of cheating the manager, and I had all these like values and ethics going through my mind in that same moment. Some of you are like, what's wrong with you? Just take the sandwich. And that, that all was playing around in my mind, like what do I do in this moment? I finally told them, hey, I, I am... <laughs> I'm full. That was actually kind of the truth. I, I was full, but I thanked him so much and I moved on. But here's the thing. Those little moments of decisions come up on all of us pretty quickly sometimes. Now, are you going to cut the corner to make the deal financially or not in your business? I mean, you know that you could make more money if you don't tell the whole truth on how the deal's actually going to go down, right? Are you going to engage the family member who's been estranged from you for a little while? You're just going to kind of keep letting it go longer and longer because you know the conversation will be hard. You know, what about the person that you're hoping to date or the person that you are dating and things might kind of be going off the rails, but it's just not going in a healthy direction and you're not sure how to have the conversation, but you find yourself in a spot where you're like, hmm, I'm kind of in the dark. Like, I wish I knew how to move forward from here. These are human experiences. These are shared experiences that all of us have. And what I want to talk about this morning is not just how to make good decisions. That's something for another day. What I want to talk about is what are all of these decisions anchored to in your heart and in my heart? What do they all come down to? Where in our hearts and in our lives can we kind of anchor or find a central point for clarity that can give us light in the darkness? Clarity on how we can move forward, when we can move forward, and what we should do in so many, so many situations. Now, here's the thing that God knows, I think, about all of us, that we need that kind of direction, that all of us need a central point, a north star, if you will, to kind of come back to. The good thing about Jesus is as he's introducing himself to the world, he's introducing himself in particular ways that I think help us get a handle on, oh, this is who Jesus is meant to be. <laughs> And this morning, we're going to see in one of Jesus' statements about himself that he makes a statement that is so helpful that it brings us to a point where we can find clarity around who he is and who he is intended to be to give light in the middle of darkness. Now, this series, we're seven weeks into this series, and I'm kind of walking through the Gospel of John and John's writing. John was an early follower of Jesus, and he wrote down his um, his, the experiences of Jesus' life and the history around Jesus' life, and we've covered signs and miracles of Jesus' life, and now we're on the second statement. Jesus makes statements about himself to introduce himself to the world. And this morning, in John chapter 8, I want to go with you into exploring one of Jesus' statements about himself. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with us to John chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with, this, or with you, it's no problem. There's a Bible in the pew around you. It's our gift to you if you don't own one. But John chapter 8, John is the fourth book in the New Testament. It was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the right two-thirds of your Bible. You can pull it up on your app or version app if you have that or um, you know, anything like that. But John chapter 8, and we're going to get to it in just a second. But like any, like any Bible story that you read, and even like any family story that you hear, it's important to have context for the story before you begin. And this morning, maybe more so even than many, the context behind what you're about to see Jesus say is so, so, so vitally 
important. And so I just want to take a moment to set it up before we get into what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 8. And here's what you should know, that there was in the history of the nation of Israel feasts that were so important to the nation of Israel. Now, in our modern world, we don't have very many things like this. We have Thanksgiving that's coming up. By show of hands, quick audience participation, how many of you have more than one family Thanksgiving event to go to this year? We have decent amount. Okay, good. How many of you have eight days of Thanksgiving meals planned? <laughs> Some of you are hope, hoping for that, right? Or not, depending on how your family goes. Now, moving on. The Feast, the feast of Tabernacles was, was one of the three most important feasts in the nation of Israel, and it became this incredible celebration. It spanned eight days uh, of time, and it began with uh, incredible sacrifices. The first day of the feast was, they had 13 bulls that were sacrificed. Can you imagine starting your Thanksgiving meal with a sacrifice like that? 13 bulls offered various animals, and as the days went on in the feasts, you would reduce one bull at a time until the seventh day, right before the final day, you'd sacrifice seven bulls on the altar. And the feast itself was designed to be a a moment of recollection of when the nation of Israel went through the wilderness in the Old Testament. And it, it's also known as the Feast of Booths, almost like Superman and his phone booth, booth, that kind of word, booth, kind of strange word for us to use. But what would happen is people would um, create temporary shelters and move out of their homes for the duration of that festival. If you've ever been a part of a family gathering, I've noticed this happens around Lancaster County with some larger families. Sometimes people go to a cabin and they can't house everybody. So some people bring tents or sleep in their cars. Have you seen that happen before? I see it happen now and then where it's like, well, the cabin only sleeps 49 and we have 87 in our family, so we need to bring all the tents, you know, to put out there. And people living in temporary shelters to, in order to, to, you know, to join in a celebration. Well, that's what was happening here. People said, you know what, we're going to move out of our permanent homes and go into these temporary booths that were made up by um, branches, really, is really all they were, you know, boughs of uh, willow and palm branches and, and myrtle and things of that nature. The point was, we're going to live in a temporary place in anticipation of a more permanent land in the future. We're going to get through the wilderness into a more permanent land. We're hoping that things will become more permanent. We have a hope for the future. That's kind of what the, the tabernacle, Feast of Tabernacles was about. Now, the, the reality is, if you can imagine, at this point, you walk into a city, and they're about to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. You know how commercialized Christmas has become around here, right? Like, I went into the hardware store yesterday for some unknown reason, and there was a um, Christmas tree already up there. Can you believe it? November 1, it's time to get it on, right? This is the same thing that happened as the Feast of Tabernacles went on and on. It became an economic opportunity. And here's a chance to roll out early tabernacle advertisements, you know, tabernacle theme songs and, you know, Feast of Booze and all that. And you began to look out into a city. If you walked into a city, you would see, imagine with the eyes of your heart for a minute, imagine the roofs, the courtyards, the streets and the squares and the roads and the gardens all beautiful green with boughs of myrtle and palm and willow just set over because this is, this is what would happen, that the entire city would get behind this image and this recollection of we as a people are living temporarily and we have a hope, a permanent hope for the future. That was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was replete throughout the city. Later on, as the Tabernacles feast would go on, what we come to learn 
is that Jews would add to the celebration a little bit. And it became this gala week, this incredible celebration, where they added this thing where they built these incredibly huge candelabras. They were so big, these candelabras were so big and so tall, that in order to make the wicks for them that would burn, they would use the old garments of priests that were worn out. And the, the young people, the youth group, right? The youth group, the young people would take the garments and they'd fix them together. Maybe, I don't know, they thought that the young people could handle that more than the old people. I don't know. But they would, they would wrap them together. They became the wicks for these incredibly huge candelabras and they would be mounted up in the temple, in the, the court of women, actually, in the temple in Jerusalem. And so if you can imagine for a minute this scene where you have these larger-than-life candelabras that are erected and put up with the wicks of the, the garments, old garments of the priests. They were lit on fire. Music is playing in the background. One rabbi um, was said to, this sounds kind of strange, but it's true, but one, one rabbi, our historical records say, that was into the celebration so much, he was actually juggling seven, like, sticks of fire. It's amazing. It's like Jerusalem's got talent or something like that, right, uh, of old. And with uh, the band playing in the background, the Levitical band playing in the background, one person wrote that you have never seen joy until you have seen the lighting of the candelabra on the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Because that last day when the candelabras are lit into the night sky on Jerusalem and the, the hill where the temple sits overlooks the city, the whole city full of green boughs of myrtle and palm and all this, and people look up and they see the priestly garments lit and on fire, cascading light down all through the entire village below, that people would see there is hope for this world. There is an anticipation that something temporary, the things that I can't see in my dark world, are going to be permanent in some way, and God is going to be the one who is going to bring the light to this world. It's in that background that Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. It's not just that Jesus was the light. He could have chosen a million illustrations. The reason he chose the light of the world was because of all that it represented within the heart and the fabric of the people. That the light of the world became that image of what life could be like if you could actually see through all of your hard situations. The light of the world became the light, the hope of humanity. The light of the world became the embodiment of what it would mean to live outside of the darkness that sometimes resides most closely in our soul that we're afraid to tell one another about. But what if you could actually be free from the things that enslaved you what if you could be free from all of the darkness that confuses and confounds you and me? What if all of these things that temporarily restrain and contain us could be lit like the candelabra up the Temple Mount and that the light of the world was here? And Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And then what he says is, if you want to follow me, whoever follows me, he says in verse 12, whoever follows me will never walk 
in darkness. Notice he doesn't even say whoever believes in me. There's a difference between following and belief, right? You can follow without believing yet. You can follow without even totally buying in yet. You can follow before doing any of that. He just says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. And that makes a lot of sense, right? If you follow the light, you certainly can see. (laughs) Even if you don't believe everything the person holding the light has, and that's what Jesus invites people to. Whoever follows me, just take the step and follow me. You won't walk in darkness. The next step you take won't be dark. The next decision to make won't be that confusing. The next opportunity you have might be clearer than you thought, and the things that actually you wrestle with in your heart may not be that difficult if you see with the light that I have. Then he finishes verse 12. You maybe see it there in front of you. He says, but will have the light of life. It's almost like he's saying to anyone who will listen, if you see that I'm the light of the world and you follow me and you'll never walk in darkness, you will have a piece of that light in your heart. You will have, you will have the light, the light of life, the light of life. Now, that sounds wonderful. That sounds great. But if we're going to engage this at a real level, we know that, well, that sounds so amazing. But I have a few questions. First of all, Jesus, what kind of gives you the right to say that you're the light of the world? I mean, you just showed up and said that. Like, I need to have that verified. You know, I mean, you'd be foolish to follow someone who doesn't verify or validate their existence, right? And that's what immediately happens in this environment. Because Jesus makes such a strong appeal to the history and richness of the people and their hope of a permanent future, the people who are listening to him at the time, the Pharisees, they raise their hand collectively and they object heartily. <laughs> they know what he's saying. He's saying that I'm, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the hope of the world. I'm going to give you light in the darkness. To which they raise their hand and you see what they say in verse 13 right here in, in John chapter 8. They say, they challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. <laughs> Makes sense. They're right, right? And you can't appear as your own witness and have your testimony be valid. I can't just say whatever I want and have you all agree. Well, that's great. Yeah, you are Superman. I mean, you should ask several questions if I declare to be Superman in front of you, right? So Jesus answered, well, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards and I pass judgment on no one. Verse 16, but if I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. (laughs) Pause for a minute. Take off your church hat and Christian hat and Bible hat for a minute, if you will. This is crazy. It's almost like a kid saying, listen, I... I, just pick it up, I, I am Superman, and you might ask them, oh yeah, well, who says you're Superman? Well, me and my imaginary friend, we say we're Superman. Like, okay, you sure do. This sounds, if you take off your Christian hat for a minute, this sounds crazy. Here's a man standing there and saying, I, I'm testifying to myself. You're rightly challenging my assertion that I'm the light of the world. Like, I need validation. You're saying, who, who's got your back? And I'm saying, well, my father does. <laughs> okay, sure. Well, then, who is your father, they ask. That's the fair next question, verse 19. Well, where is your father, they ask. Then they, he says, you do not know me or my father, he replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. 
He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now in fairness, the truth is that Jesus' validation for his statements are not just what he says and his father say, but also the works that he has done, the signs that he has done, the miracles that he has done. You have to attribute that somewhere. And this is part of Jesus' introduction to the world, is the signs and the statements together. And if you want to see with the eyes of your heart, you will see that indeed the Father's validation is validation. But if you want to see with the eyes of the skeptic and dismiss all of the signs and miracles that Jesus has done to this point, you will see with the eyes of the skeptic, and this will seem crazy to you. I understand that. Verse 21. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away, and you'll look for me, and you'll die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And then this made the Jews ask, well, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you would indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. I think frustrated with the lack of clarity. Who are you? Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied, I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who has sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling him about his father. And so Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And then verse 30 introduces us to the response of some people in the crowd. Even as he spoke, Many believed in him. Not all, but many. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. And then what happens next is Jesus begins to speak to those in the crowd who had believed him. Verse 31. To the Jews who believed him, he said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then he says, Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Very important moment here. He's making this strong tie-in, and don't miss this. Here's the tie-in that he's making, that hope doesn't work without truth. Hope doesn't work without truth, right? Hope doesn't work without truth. There are some times that I hope in products that don't actually deliver. When we did our, our benefit ride up to Harvard this past weekend, it was raining on Sunday. It was not fun, and I had bought some rain gear that turned out not to be rain gear, actually, at all. So I had hope in the truth of the advertising. In fact, one of my, my gloves actually had the word waterproof um, emblazoned on the, both index fingers. As I got to the rest stops about, you know, uh, I think about 45 minutes in or an hour into one of our, our days, I just took my hand and I just made a fist and three gallons of water poured out of my hand just like that. I'm like, this is not true, right? This, this little thing on my finger is not true. This is not waterproof. Um, my feet were turning purple and were cold and frozen even though I had waterproof shoe covers on. I had a waterproof jacket and I was soaked all the way through. I had hope in something that was sold as truth but is not true. And so when I buy a product that I hope in and isn't true, then I want to, like you do, I want to return it, right? Because it doesn't work. When you hope in ideas that you think are going to be true and they are not true, you want to do the exact same thing to those ideas. 
So for some of you, those ideas have been, maybe church will work for me. But maybe it hasn't, and you're on the verge of returning that idea to sender. Maybe you've gone through a period of suffering and pain, and you've hoped in the truth that God is with you and protect you, but you don't see the truth of it, and so you've hoped in something you're not sure is true, and you're about ready to send that back, because hope that isn't tied to truth doesn't work. And that's why Jesus makes a statement that's so important, that he's the hope of the world, the light of the world is the hope of the world, but he's also saying, as the light of the world, I want you to know that I am also the truth, and the truth will set you free. Hope that isn't tied to truth doesn't work long term. It doesn't work. And Jesus makes it clear, I am also the truth. Also the truth. He'll make that statement later on. But not everyone in the crowd believed him. In verse 33, the others reacted this way. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Here's what Jesus is saying here, that he offers the light of the world. He offers this freedom from darkness. He offers this freedom from sin. He's offering this freedom, this freedom from being led by me for me. I'll say that again. He's, he's, he's offering this freedom from a life in which we are led by me for me. Freedom for you, in which you are led by you for you. In which my world and my priorities and my day revolves around what I think will be best. Jesus is saying that sin is going to engage and encompass all of us. That there is no person who is removed from the... the, the umbrella of sin. It's a shared uh, reality that we all have. This instinct to care for ourselves first rather than our neighbor that is in us from little on up as we see. And Jesus is saying, I've come, the light of the world has come to bring freedom from darkness, freedom from sin, freedom from being, having a life that is led for me, by me. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we can really affirm what a, a guy named Thomas Akempis, a 14th century Christian thinker, had to say. And I love the way he says it. He asks such a penetrating question around this issue. But I wanted to put it up here for you because I think we can all relate to this. Thomas Akempis asked this question. He said, who has a fiercer struggle than the person who strives to master himself? Who has a fiercer struggle than the person who strives to master himself. Boy, come on, if we're honest, have you ever deceived yourself? Have you ever committed to starting a habit or stopping a habit? Have you ever committed to loving someone unconditionally and failed? Have you ever even said, I will never do this again, and you find yourself there all of a sudden, and you don't know why, and you're too ashamed to tell anyone that you've ever gotten there again? Have you ever been there have you ever tried? Have you ever tried to master the darkness in your own heart? Have you ever tried to master the insidious pain and, and hiddenness that we all have within us to keep our images together? Have you ever tried to master that behemoth of a monster inside of us that wants to rage to control the world for me, by me? Who has a fiercer challenge? 
than the one who tries to master himself. And this is why Jesus, standing there with the crowd, with the candelabra lit on the hill behind him, says, "Ah, you don't need to be a slave to this anymore. You don't need to live in the darkness of that place of your soul where you can't see where to go next, where you're not sure how you should love best, where you're not sure what forgiveness will look like, where you don't know if you have the courage to lead your business in the direction it really needs to go, to lead your family in the direction it really needs to go, or to lead yourself in the direction that you really need to go. And he says, I'm, I'm the light of the world. And if you want to, he invites it. He says, if you want to, follow me. Follow me. You don't even need to believe fully in me. You don't even need to buy into everything yet. I just want you to follow me. He says, whoever follows will not walk in darkness. You won't walk in darkness. And you will get, he says, you will get the light of life. This is the message for anyone who's tired. Anyone who is tired of all of the millions of self-salvation projects that we have, the ways that we try to set up our lives, our futures, that our future is secure, that our image is just right, that our families are picture perfect, that no one ever knows the real struggles that go on underneath the surface. But who has a fiercer challenge than to master himself? And this is why when Jesus comes and introduces himself to the world, and maybe, maybe for you this morning, for the first time, reintroduces himself to you. He doesn't come as a judge in this way. Mm-mm. He comes offering the grace of almost being stuck on an elevator in the dark, saying, you know what, I got that light for you. I got that light. I know you're not sure if you want to go up or down or if you want to hit which button you want to hit to, to do what next. But I'm the light of the world. All that we have been hoping for is resident in Jesus. And hope is tied to truth. He says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the abundant. And so if you're here this morning, you're seeing or maybe hearing Jesus again for the first time, I want to invite you to consider. I want to invite you to consider Jesus as the light of the world. The one who's inviting you to orient every part of your day around. Every part of your family around, every part of your business around, every part of your schooling around, every part of your hobbies around. And here's what I want to do for us this morning as we close. I want to give us a time in kind of reflective prayer to just take a few moments to let this settle down in for a minute. I want to pray for us and I want to invite you to consider a couple questions while we pray. Because I don't think this is too complicated. I just think the routineness is necessary for me, maybe for you. The routineness of walking, the routineness of following is not a one-time decision that I made at a camp somewhere and now we're good to go. The routineness of following has a dailiness to it. It has a rhythm to it. To continue to come regularly to the feet of the cross, to continue to come regularly to the light of the world, to walk with, to follow the one who brings the light. 
And so as we close in prayer, I want to just take a few moments. As I ask some questions, I'm going to give you some time to ask yourself the question, does the light of the world shine through my life? Is my, are my routines some that at some point in my day, before I get on with it at school, before I get on with it with my spouse, before I get on with it with my career and job and leading all the things that you lead, before you get on with all the incredible things that you're doing, before you get on with all of that, do we take a moment to get the light of life and to come to the feet of Jesus, to walk, to follow, that we may get life? So, if you will, will you pray with me? as we walk through this exercise. Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to be here this morning, and I do pray for us this morning as we see again, maybe hear again for the first time, that Jesus has come, your Son has come to offer himself as the light of life, to bring clarity in the darkness, to help us set aside all of the things that we do to try to save ourselves, all the work we do to be men and women who have great businesses, who have great careers, who have great families and can handle the struggles that we have without much thought at all. I pray this morning, in the moments that we have, that you would help us step back and ask some of these questions. And so we're going to ask these now. I'm going to ask you to consider I'll give you a moment to think about this. Is there any place in your heart that you know is darkened to the light of God? Any place in your heart that you know you're trying to keep hidden from God, that you know you don't want the light to shine into, and there are good reasons why you don't want that, but I just want to ask you to consider the question. Are there any parts of your heart or your mind that are darkened to the light of God this morning. I also want you to consider, are there any places in which I am being led by me and for me, that my agenda, my priorities, without thought to what God might want, without consideration of what Jesus may prefer, are there any places where I am leading me for my benefit, where I am out front and I haven't submitted these desires? To the light of the world? Are there any places in your heart where you are being led by you for you? Now I want you to consider this morning. What would it look like? What would it look like for the light of God to shine in your values, in your passion, in your vision 
in your dreams for the future, what would it look like for the light of God to shine in those areas for you? What would it be like to come before the cross of Christ and allow the love of God through Christ, the light of life, to shine through your values, your vision, your dreams, your future? Invite God in this moment to speak into that space for you and give you a picture of what it would look like in your values, with your family, with your careers, with your future, with your health crisis. What would it look like? Dear God, I pray for us this morning that we can center up to the cross, that for those here this morning who are uh, not sure whether Jesus is worth following or not, I understand that. I pray that you would give us the interest to at least ask the question of whether I should take the next step to follow. For those who are already on this journey, I pray that you would continue to help us not just to have checked a box sometime in our past, but to come daily, to come with a rhythm to the light of the world, that whoever follows will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So I pray that you would help us to walk. I don't even want a 10-year plan here, I just want a daily plan. I pray that your light would illuminate the values, dreams, the visions, and cast out the darkness of the turmoil and the struggle and the angst and the shame and the addictions and the past abuse and the hurt that we have in this space. That we can live in the freedom of hope tied to truth. We thank you that you are the light in the darkness, that you give hope and that you restore every heart that is broken. Give us the courage to follow, no matter what that will take. I pray this in Jesus' name.